As we get into the word for this week, if you have a Bible, you can turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. As you're making your way there, let me throw this out to you to consider. I can't be the only one in the room who feels this way a lot, but do you ever feel like you just don't have enough time to do everything you want to do in your life? Now, I remember, (laughs) thank you, I remember this time when I had all the free time I I could possibly imagine on my hands. Uh, like when I just had a, like an abundance of time to do things and invest myself in different pet projects and things like that. And I'm realizing now that that, date, that time in my life is now coming on its 20, 20th anniversary of when it ended. So it doesn't last long, needless to say. Um, basically, it doesn't take long to see how quickly things can fill up your schedule. Uh, Time works that way. It's funny that way. It always expands to exactly how much free time you give it, and then you're full pretty much instantly. Um, as a result, what happens is we're quickly confronted with basically what that means is you're instantly confronted with your finiteness. Okay. So if you look at your life and you go, I just don't have enough time to do all the things I want to do or I think I should do. Some of them are good things. Some of them are just hobbies. Whatever they are. What you're basically coming face to face with is the fact that we are all finite creatures. We all have limitations in our time, limitations in our schedule, and only so much energy to get certain things done. As a result, what you quickly realize is you have to start making cuts. So you've got to figure out what you're going to focus on and what you aren't, or else you'll have a mental breakdown pretty quickly. And then really, nothing gets done when that happens. For the past two weeks, we've been looking at Paul's second letter to Timothy. Timothy was Paul's understudy. And Paul is at the end of his days. He's nearing the end of his life now. And so he encourages Timothy to follow in his footsteps, even if that means sharing his faith. His fate, I should say. Paul was beheaded, after all, for his faith. And Timothy would also go on to be martyred for his faith. This week, what we're going to see is how he helps Timothy learn to focus his efforts on that which matters most, and that applies to us as well. So, sometimes I give it to you at the end. I'm going to give it to you right now at the beginning. Here's the big idea. If you remember nothing else from this week's lesson, remember this. Wise Christians must know what to avoid and what to pursue. Wise Christians, not just people who believe in Jesus, but people who actually you put what they know to use, wise Christians need to know what to avoid and what to pursue in life. This means some fights are not worth having, as Paul is going to explain. Now, I have to confess, if that means some battles are not worth fighting, some fights and arguments are not worth having, guys, I got to confess to you, I love a good argument. Like, that, that hurts me, personally, just a little bit to say it. I don't know, I don't try to pick fights, but I don't like to back down when, when challenged either. Some of you are the same way. Now, sometimes this is a good thing. In both letters to Timothy, Paul keeps telling him to keep on fighting what he calls the good fight of faith, basically. So, contrary to popular opinion, Christianity is not characterized by absolute pacifism. Christi- Christianity uh, is, invo- is, in fact, has battles to fight. And Paul calls them a good fight. They're worthy fights to have. 
So basically what Paul tells Timothy is fight what if you're going to if you have to pick and choose your battles, pick fights worth fighting for. Now, this raises the question, what's worth fighting for? Well, the good news is Paul tells us over and over and over again. See, Paul sees himself and Timothy as well as one who was entrusted with the word of truth, God's saving plan for humanity. And so he is called to fight and protect that whenever it's challenged. Another way is to say he is, uh, Paul sees himself as one who fights for right or sound doctrine. Doctrine is, is a teaching. Specifically, we talk about it in church as a teaching from God. So what Paul says is there's, he is to fight for the word of truth. He's been entrusted with it from God, and if someone stands against it, he's going to fight for it. Let me give you another reference. First uh, Timothy, his first letter, Paul says in chapter 6, verse 2 through 5, he says, Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching which accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit, and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So when it comes to the truth of Christ's message, Paul says it's a worthy fight. Be willing to die for it, as a matter of fact. Now, if you take a passive stance towards such things as that, the reason, so if we come to people who are teaching a false thing about Jesus, a false, thing, a false doctrine of salvation, a false view of God, and how we are to be made right with them, we should absolutely fight for that, guys. Don't ask questions. As a matter of fact, if you, if you find yourself saying, oh, I just don't want to you know, make them feel uncomfortable, I don't want to make the situation weird, and you back away from defending the truth then, guys, let me be honest. We do that not because we love our neighbors so much, but because we fear them more than the approval of God. That's why that happens. So Paul says, when God's truth, the truth of salvation, is up for grabs, Fight for it with all your life. However, not every argument and fight is the same thing. Not all fights are, are, are equal. Paul explains that as well in this passage that we're going to look at. See, some people just want to start a fight, like he said, or quarrel, as Paul says it, calls it elsewhere. They don't want to get the truth, which will lead them to godly living. They just want to stir the pot, basically. Now, everyone knows someone like this. They don't really like to talk about the Bible. They just like to talk about what they like to talk about. And if they can twist the word to saying what they think it sa they want it to say, they're happy with the argument. But it goes even further. We aren't just talking about speculation over obscure passages. We're not talking about, oh, you know, the classic argument of, uh, that they would have in their day of how many angels could fit on the, the, the head of a pin or whatever, you know? We're not talking about that kind of like non-important, like, like, non -import, like non stuff that doesn't affect you. We're talking about teaching that actually promotes ungodliness in the church. Such teaching is rightly called by the word it's given, heresy. Heresy refers to a teaching or belief which deviates from Christian, established Christian truth or orthodoxy and has destructive consequences on those who hear it. 
of such heretics as we shall see this morning, Paul says, avoid them like the plague. So let me, uh, as we begin this morning, what I want you to do is simply listen. I'm going to read you the passage up front, and then I'm going to talk to you about it. So for, if you would, as uh, him who has ears, let him hear. Open your ears and listen to the reading of God's word. Second uh, Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 11. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Remind them of these things and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable use. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue unrighteousness, or sorry, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must be not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they, come, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. This is God's word. So, basically, in order to be a wise Christian, we need to know what is worth fighting for, what we should pursue, and what fights, what things to avoid. So, real simple this week, guys. I want to simply uh, walk through and list some things from you and talk to you a little bit about what this passage tells us, what we should be avoiding, and what we should be pursuing. Sound good? All right. So, first, let's start out with what we want to avoid, or rather even whom we want to avoid. So here is it. Avoid arguments that lead to nothing. Okay? Paul says this over and over again in this passage. He says in verse 14, charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good. There's no good, there's no result, but only ruins the hearers. Verse 22, it says, so flee youthful passions. And verse 23 says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they only breed quarrels. Okay, so there's a type of, uh, there's a type of argument which does nothing but leads to more and more arguments. This is what Paul is addressing here. Basically, if it doesn't lead to godly living, it probably isn't a an argument worth having. 
See, Paul is always looking at the end at the end game there. He's always thinking, asking the question, what is this leading to? So if it's actually going to lead to better Christian living, to being more like Jesus, to loving your neighbor more, then yeah, have the argument. But if the end result is just, well, this is going to lead to another argument, which leads to another argument, which isn't going to lead to better Christian living, then he says, hold off on that argument. Don't even worry about it. Um, like I said, here's the dilemma. Real, some arguments are really fun to have. I get it. If they weren't, people wouldn't have them. Um, he calls these youthful passions here. Now, if you grew up in youth ministry, you, uh, they always explained, uh, and I've done this, I'm guilty as this as well, is explaining youthful passions is always referring to lust. However, what more likely youthful passions means in the context of this passage is quarrel, being, fight, being quarrelsome. Now, I, if you have boys especially, you like know this is just what like young boys do. Young boys fight. Like this is, you have to do this. I, had, I grew up in... Uh, uh, like the neighborhood, my parents were kind of like the neighborhood parents to, uh, to all the kids. Kids would get in fights. Uh, my friends would get in fights in the, with each other in the backyard, in the front yard, all the time. My parents had to break it up and such. Some of them are in the room. I'm not going to point them out or anything. <laughs> Anyways, people love to fight. Kids love to fight. And so what Paul says is, if you're just trying to pick a fight to pick a fight, you're acting like a kid, essentially. Um, what does that mean? It means, God, it means God forces us to consider the result of our arguments. What is this producing? What is this leading to? Which, which means something. Every conversation you have, every, way, every time you speak, it's moving towards an end. It's either going to be godliness or ungodliness. So pick and choose the conversations and the arguments and the fights you have. Now, it doesn't mean don't have them. It just means choose wisely. You have a finite amount of time on your hands. Don't waste the time God has given you in life having arguments that go nowhere. What else to avoid? Well, Paul says, avoid talks which belittle God. Verse 16 says, avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. And he names two people whose names I probably butchered. Hymenaeus and Philetus? Philetus? Who knows? We'll just go with that. Who have swerved from the truth, verse 18, saying the resurrection has already happened, and he says they are upsetting the faith of some. So these guys have a problem, basically. They thought that the resurrection already happened. Now, you might ask yourself, well, how does that affect godliness, right? Like, why does believing the resurrection already happened, how would that affect your, like, day-to-day -day life? Well, it's simple. If the resurrection has already happened, that means this life is as good as it gets. And if this is as good as it gets, go live like there is nothing beyond this. Right? That's the idea. That's how this false, now this, that's how this false idea basically would lead to ungodly living. If there's nothing beyond this life, if this is where it is, just go live it up. But Paul says there's more to life than this. And so he calls them, he corrects them on this. He says, don't waste your time with such people. Don't give them a platform. He says, basically, bad talk, foolish arguments spread. Like I said, they're popular. People like to have them. We love controversies. I'm guilty of this as much as you are. But he says it's cancerous. It, only, it spreads aggressively, and it only leads to more ungodliness. Now... 
what happened as a result is that the faith of some was upset, he says. Now, this is, this is important to note. Upsetting the faith of some is not the same thing as upsetting the feelings of some. Sometimes we get these two confused. He's not saying he hurt that, that this was hurting someone's feelings and that's why it was bad. He's saying it was leading their faith astray. They were believing a lie and they were living their life according to that lie. That is what leading their faith astray meant. Their faith was upset in that it led them away from the truth which leads to godliness. So that's what we're to avoid, right? Pretty simple. Avoid arguments which uh, lead to nothing and avoid arguments which belittle God, which take away from what God has revealed about himself. So then what should we pursue? A couple things I have for you. First, pursue sound doctrine. Or if you want a simpler way to think of that, pursue right teaching. He says, he, uh, Paul tells Timothy, verse 14, remind them of these things. What are these things? Well, the things he just went over, right? If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we are faithless, he, uh, he remains faithful. These are basic core truths of the Christian faith. These are the basics of the gospel, essentially. He talks about the idea that our, uni our unity to Christ, uh, we are united in Christ in death and in his resurrection. He calls us to remain faithful. And he says that the faithfulness of Jesus remains even in spite of our shortcomings. He says, these are the things that you should pursue. Understand these truths, because these truths will actually change your life. Therefore, we, keep, we work to keep these things front and center in our worship. Guys, there's a very deliberate task in everything we do here as a church. We take the Lord's Supper. We do so to remind you that this is what our hope is built on, the gospel of Jesus Christ. He gave himself so that we could be made right with God. We read scripture a whole lot in here because we value this stuff, because we believe that this leads to life and godliness. And so that's why true right teaching is something to pursue. What else should we pursue? We'll pursue a good conscience. Verse 15, he says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Now, I pause for a second in that. Because I know, I know my Bible and I know the gospel and I go, well, wait a minute. A worker who is one approved, present yourself as a worker who is one approved. Wait, isn't it Jesus who makes us worthy to stand before God? Like, I can't work for that. So what's he saying? Well, yes, it's true. Your standing before God is, is, forced, is, is based solely on what Jesus has done for you, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. When he says one approved, it means literally one who is proven, one whose faith has stood the test of time. Paul wants Timothy to be able to show the genuineness of his faith as it is stood up to testing. Now, uh, this reminds me of uh, old-timey commercials that they used to do a lot, and they did them for like decades. Uh, you'll probably remember them. Uh, it takes a licking and... Exactly. So uh, one of the things I love, I'll watch old TV shows back in the day and where they just like basically pan the camera over and they'll have a guy sit there and take a watch and just submerge it in water for like a second and then he holds it up to show you that it's still ticking to be like, why? He wants you to buy the watch, right? He's like, this is a good watch. This is worth uh, buying. This is essentially what Paul wants with our faith. He wants you to have faith that takes a licking and keeps on ticking. He wants you to be able to show, yeah, I've had hardships. 
I've gone through trouble. I've suffered. But my faith is still there. It's still going. Because when you show that to people, that means there's something, that, that, there's something unique about your life. And they're going to ask questions about it. See, he, he then refers to a worker who has no need to be ashamed. Now think about it. Why would a worker be ashamed? Well, because they did shoddy work, right? Like, it's, that's what you do. You, you know what I mean? If, you have, if someone uh, fixed up your house, and before they show you the work they do, hey, that's great. Can I just get the check? And then I'll show you all the work, or I'll be out of your way. Don't give them the check, right? So that, why? Because they're probably ashamed of their work. They're probably ashamed that the moment you turn a, a, turn a handle, the door's going to fall off the hinges or something, and the roof's going to cave in, and they just want to take the money and run. Paul says that's not the kind of faith we have. We want to have confidence of what we have. We want to be able to say, yeah, I have served the Lord, and, and it's, I have not been perfect, but I am proud of what God has done through me. And he says, aim for that. Timothy was called to labor in such a way that he could present his labor to God himself with confidence. Why? Because if you have confidence with God, well, who else do you have to fear? And then he says uh, that they should be able to rightly handle the word of truth. Now, we've talked about this a lot. I actually want, am thinking about doing an extra Bible study video to unpack what this means a little further. But basically... What he's saying is that Paul expects Timothy to protect the message handed down to him. He's like, look, I received a message. I passed the baton to you. At the end of your days, you better be willing to pass the baton to the next generation. You have to hand, and it should look exactly the same. Guys, the truth is the, word, the same Bible we study right now should be the same Bible that Paul passed on to Timothy. And we have kids' ministry, and that's why we're doing things like baby dedication, is because we understand one day we're going to pass that on to the next generation. Part of our calling is to see ourselves as the ones who will pers persevere the truth of the gospel and then pass it on to the next generation. By the way, I don't know if I've told you and complimented you guys enough on this. When I look out and we have a multi-generational congregation, it makes me happy. It means that it leads me to believe that, we are, that God is doing something awesome. Now, anyways, what else should we pursue? Pursue usefulness in God's kingdom. Verse 20 and 21, he says, Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. What is Paul getting at with this illustration? Well, the way you are currently living your life should inform you how you expect God to use you, right? This is how he teaches this over and over again. If you're faithful with a little, I'll trust you with more. You have to ask the question, does my life is my life something that I would expect God to actually trust me with more things? See, God will use everyone according to this illustration. The question is, what for? Um, I don't know why I wrote this in my notes, but in my notes it says, in other words, don't live like, don't live like a bedpan and expect to be used as fine china. Maybe an edit would have worked before this. I don't know. I hope that rings true. But that's the idea. Look, you can't live a certain way and then expect God to use you in absolute contrast for the way you live. Okay? 
If you expect God to use you for honorable purposes, try to live an honorable life. See, and what prepares us for that? Repentance prepares us for noble use. Guys, we're all dirty dishes, okay? None of us are fit for this. We are made fit by the, by the grace of God. And so by confessing our sins, by turning from our sins, we are made ready for noble use. And then Paul says, pursue good shepherding. Verse 24 through 25. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Why did I say shepherding there? Well, shepherding the flock is what leaders do, uh, basically. Uh, people have asked me, so we'll, I'll sometimes use the term elders or pastors at this church interchangeably. If you were wondering, they mean the same thing, okay? Basically, elders pastor. What does pastor mean? It means shepherd. Elders shepherd and pastor who God has put in their charge. So what traits must a good shepherd possess? Well, Paul uh, uh, tells us they should be kind. As with all virtues, by the way, this is rooted in who God is. We are kind because God is kind to us. He shows his kindness in giving us life, but he also shows that kindness not, only, not just to those who trust in him, but to everyone he show, God shows kindness. Uh, popular verse, uh, Jesus himself quoted, he says, God sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Uh, people in past times would call this common grace. The fact that God is still has been too good to everyone, okay? And so we should be too good to everyone too. We should be kind. Now, when we show kindness even to those who don't deserve us, uh, even to those who don't deserve it, we show divine kindness, okay? Human kindness will always be nice to people who are nice to them. Divine hey, don't mind standing right there. Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> Someone standing in the front row is named Divine, and so I was like, hey, I was like, hey, Divine's right there. Anyways, divine kindness will always stand out between, uh, from the kindness that uh, everyone else will offer. And then he says, be patient. This is often well described in another word, long-suffering. See, patience implies a certain amount of pain. If you don't believe patience implies a certain amount of pain, take this advice. Have a child, okay? It will convince you that patience does not come without suffering, okay? We had to install a dome on our baby crib this week because he was getting out. Patience involves suffering, okay? If you want to live a, li a godly life, you're going to ha understand you're going to have to put up with some things you don't have to put up, want to put up with, okay? All of us are going to have to put up with some things we don't want to put up with if we actually want to please the one who has called us. And then Paul says, a good shepherd shows gentleness. This word is also often paired with another word, correction. See, gentleness is by no means non-confrontational. Here Paul assumes that there will be confrontation. Um, basically, gentleness describes how you confront someone if they're, if they're in error not, error, not whether or not you do it. The way we approach people should be described with gentleness. That means we need to be prepared to confront sin quickly, but do so with consideration. 
One obvious reason is that this is how God has dealt with us. Guys, praise God that he doesn't leave us the way that we are, that we were. He actually addresses our sin, but he does so gently. Guys, if God didn't handle you gently, you would not be able to stand it, and neither would I. If God just showed up on your doorstep one day and was like, hey, here's a list of all the wrongs you, you've done, and it ran all the way down the street, you wouldn't know what to do with it, right? But what does he do? No, he addresses us one sin at a time. He works on us over time. And so we are called to address the sin in others the same way. We do this because we want to see change in people's lives. Paul said, do this because God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. In other words, you just never know whose heart God might change. Remember that. Guys, I've seen people come to faith that if you walk by them or you met them before, you would never think that that person could become a Christian. Some of you are like that. In, all tr in truth, all of us are like that. You never know. And so that's why we proceed that way. And then, then the last of these, pursue godly character. He says, verse 22, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. All of these attributes are things that God possesses, and he calls us to, to, to show forth as well. All of these things as well, all of these virtues, all of this character can only come by faith. He says it is for those who call on the Lord. Pursue these things with those who call on the Lord. The calling on the Lord here refers to calling on the Lord for salvation. It's a cry. It is, uh, the calling on the Lord is a call of faith. And then all these things start from within. He says those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. See, we naturally re reflect what is inside us, whether it's beautiful or ugly. I want you guys to understand it. We like to think we can fake it, but the truth is you're not as good at faking it as you might think you are, and you can only fake it for so long. The truth is, give it enough time, we will all reflect what's inside of us. He says, go Paul says, pursue these traits with other Christians who call on God from a sincere or pure heart. In other words, we might be able to modify our behavior, but only God can change a heart. This is why repentance and faith are so crucial to the Christian life. And guys, with all that said, truth be told, none of this is easy. But thank God, none of it is unclear either, right? See, we can, say, uh, we can look at this and say it's going to be hard, and we're right. We can look at this and say it's going to be painful, and you're right. But this much I take a lot of confidence in. It's not like God wasn't clear in what he expected of us. It's not like he didn't tell us, pursue this, avoid this. He absolutely did, and he has done so without ambiguity. Now, how has he done that? Let me consider this. I want to close out on this. How has God shown us these things clearly? First, he's told us plainly in his word. I'm shocked by how often people forget God wrote a book. See, God's word is meant to change your pursuits in life. In it, he shows you, what you who you were meant to be, how you've fallen short of that, and then how you can be brought back to that purpose. Most of all, however, he has shown us how we are brought back to that life and purpose 
through the life, death, and resurrection of his son. This is crucial. None of this is even remotely possible without first coming to faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. You can't earn your way back to God. His word makes that point over and over and over again. The only way to pursue a truly godly life is through faith in Jesus. Second, this is the last thing I have for you. He has given us godly examples to follow. See, Paul's life was an example for Timothy. And he knew it. We can easily downplay how important influences actually are in our lives. Sometimes we like to do this because we don't like to admit how much an influence we have on other people. Because we think it gets us off the hook. Guys, the people you surround yourself have a profound impact on your life. And the people you surround yourself with, you have a profound impact on their life. If you don't have godly examples in your life, by the way, guys, let me encourage you to join a small group and find some. We have Bible studies on Tuesday night. Wednesday night, we have a men's group on Thursday night. We got a prayer meeting on Wednesday mornings. I would love, if you don't have people in your life where you say, these are the people who encourage my faith. These are the people who hold me accountable. These are the people who, who push me forward with godlessness, godliness. Not godlessness. Get those people out of your lives. Avoid those people. <laughs> Guys, I encourage you to find some. And once again, don't miss this. He has shown us the perfect example, ultimately, in Jesus. No one's ever loved more, was more kind and gentle, corrected er er error and falsehood more. No one avoided worthless arguments better than Jesus. So avoid someone who thinks they know how to handle life better than him. Guys, in all these things, they find their their fullness in Jesus. Therefore, to him alone be the glory. Bow your heads, let's pray. Father God, we thank you and we praise you for you are good and kind. You are steadfast in love. And God, you tell us clearly what we should pursue in life and what we are to avoid. Lord, help us to be wise with these things. Help us to pursue the things we are called to pursue. Help us to avoid the things you say are not worth it. Father God, I know we can all look into our lives right now and look and say, there's a lot of things I should not waste my time on. Help us to turn from that. Help us to look to you, the, the one who is faithful, who makes us worthy to serve you. And God, help us to pursue the things that lead to godliness. For we want to make much of you. We want to glorify your name. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.